Hey, Resiliency listeners, welcome to episode 55 of Resiliency. This is Silas West. Today I'm recording without my co-host Steve Finley, so you're just going to have to put up with me. We're going to give you a show that's a little bit different today. At the request of one of our field workers, in light of the holiday season coming up, we decided to put together a show that's specific to grief and loss. Now, we've already heard from Bob Watson in episode 17 on this topic, and we followed that episode with Steve interviewing me on the topic of lament in episode 18. But this episode is a little different, and hopefully it's going to add to the conversations we've already started. In this episode, instead of an interview format, I'm going to share some insights I've gathered over the years on grief and loss. We've never done an episode like this before, and I doubt we'll do many more like it, but we hope you find this encouraging and helpful as you face loss in various ways this holiday season. After the intro, I'm going to share a resource on TCK grief and loss called The Grief Tower by Lauren Wells, and then I'll be sharing from various authors and podcast interviews on the subject of loss and grief. We hope you like what we've lined up for you today. to Resiliency, a podcast that takes an inside look at enhancing the vitality and resiliency of field workers. Twice a month, co-hosts Steve Finley and Silas West bring you their conversations with long-term field workers or experts in the field of member care with the goal of encouraging you in your life and work of cross-cultural ministry. Hey everybody, welcome back to Resiliency. If you are joining us for the first time, then let me extend a special welcome to you. Whether this is your first time or you are a regular listener, we would love to hear from you. You can tell us what we're doing, how we're doing, tell us what we could do better, or you can even share ideas that you have of guests or topics that you think would be relevant to global worker resiliency. You can follow us on Instagram at Resiliency Podcast. You can email us at resiliencypodcast at antiochwaco.com. Leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts or leave us a voice message at www.anchor.fm forward slash Antioch hyphen resiliency. So many ways that you can contact us. We've made it as easy for you as possible. We want to hear from you. I mentioned in the intro segment that we have a resource to share with you. A few months back, our TCK MK advocate, Connie Dunn, brought a book to my attention called The Grief Tower, a practical guide to processing grief with third culture kids authored by Lauren Wells. It's not a very long book, but it is a really well-done one and well worth the read if you're a TCK MK yourself, even a grown-up one like I am, or a parent of a TCK or someone in the role of educating or caring for TCKs. If you have a TCK in your life, this book's for you. Lauren writes from the perspective of being an adult TCK, and she applies research on the impact of adverse child events to TCK experiences. She pays specific attention to the various types of experiences that may leave TCKs with unresolved grief and pain, something very common in TCK experience. She uses the image of a tower to paint a picture of how painful experiences stack up when TCKs don't have the opportunity or the support to process them, and what happens when the tower gets too high and comes crashing down. To prevent that, Lauren offers practical activities parents and TCKs can do to purposefully deconstruct those grief towers piece by piece. This little book is quick and easy to read, and whether you are an expat parent, a professional working with TCKs, or even a TCK yourself, it's well worth your time. As always, I will include a link to the book in today's show notes. And now, let's get on with today's show. 
I mentioned in the intro, the holiday season is nearly here. Most people look forward to the holidays. For the majority of people, this is a time of year where you anticipate family gatherings, decorate, and get into the spirit of things. It's a time for eating good food and getting together with the people we love. And maybe that's what makes it an especially difficult time of year for some. The shared experience of joy, anticipation, and overall goodwill can make it especially difficult for people who have lost a loved one or who don't have great family memories or experiences. It can really be a time for loneliness and isolation for many. The holiday season can actually be a painful reminder of the loved ones we have lost and not having anyone to share those experiences with because everyone else is celebrating. And let's face it, who wants to be the party pooper? But that lack of shared community to share our losses with can be very difficult. The experience I just described is also something that many global workers face. Perhaps it's not the loss of a loved one to death, although missionaries are just as likely to lose loved ones as anyone else, and the holidays can be painful for that reason as it is for anyone else, but also because you're far away from those who are going on with their celebrations without you. Traditions are being kept, but you aren't able to be a part of them, and sometimes it's just the environment. It was only in the later years of being in Nepal that Christmas consumerism began to creep in, so we really didn't have the decorations or music to help us get into the spirit of things. That can be a loss. Our first Christmas tree was a two-dimensional one made out of construction paper taped to the back of a door. I've mentioned on previous episodes the memory of growing up in Africa and my own father's acute depression around Christmas because of his longing for family and snow and familiar holiday traditions. Nothing would put him into a funk more than seeing me walk into the house in my shorts and flip-flops in December, a far cry from the long underwear, flannel, and boots we would be wearing in western Pennsylvania that time of year. And in our years of living in Nepal, it wasn't until we were able to form our own traditions and have shared people to celebrate with that Thanksgiving and Christmas stopped being such a difficult time for our family and members of our team who were missing family gatherings and sitting around the table with loved ones who were far away from them. Loss is an interesting thing because it is universal, but how we deal with it is anything but universal. Contrasting to some of the cultures I've lived and worked in, our North American culture does not give loss very many opportunities to address itself. Maybe it would help to provide a couple of definitions here. Loss is the experience of losing something valuable or meaningful to someone. Grief is the complex array of emotions that accompany loss. And grieving is the process, both what we do intentionally and what happens unintentionally, in order to move through the emotions associated with loss. Mourning and lament are intentional ways we can engage in our grief in order to process through them. What we see in North America is that grief is one of the most neglected emotional processes, and the results of unprocessed grief and loss are devastating to the landscape of our emotional and our mental health. One of the key aspects of developing resiliency is intentionally processing loss by actively engaging our grief and not ignoring it, by not minimizing it, or not convincing ourselves that we are strong when we don't let it out. Therefore, grief and loss has become an area of special focus for me in my counseling practice, mostly by necessity. I read extensively and I listen to podcasts on grief, the effects of loss, the interchange between trauma and grief, and anything else I can find on the subject. A week or so ago, I was meeting with some global workers who were sharing about their past experiences of grief during the holiday season and the looming anticipation of it this year. As we talked through it, I offered some thoughts and things I had learned, and they encouraged me to share it on the podcast. So with Thanksgiving being next week, I didn't have time to figure out how to set up an interview, so I decided to jump in and do it this way. For those of you who want to go and do a deeper dive into the podcasts and books I refer to in this episode, I will put a list of the sources in the show notes. 
Nora McClurney did a TED Talk after writing a book, Life's Rough Edges, where she shared some thoughts on dealing with grief. She has experienced a great deal of tragedy and hardship in her life, and one of the things she hates most that well-meaning people try to suggest to bring comfort to her is that things happen for a reason. She said, and I quote, that is the worst. For me, there will never be a reason good enough for my husband to die painfully and brutally at the age of 35. I will never look at my life and say, you know, everything happened in my life for a reason, and Aaron died so that years later I could be on the TED Radio Hour sharing my experiences with grief. She's the host of the podcast, Terrible, Thanks for Asking, which shares stories from people going through some of the worst times of their lives. And she authored a book that documents the death of her husband from brain cancer titled, We Don't Move On From Grief, We Move Forward With It. Nora highlighted one of the most important elements of grief, the acceptance of just how unspecial we actually are. So often in our tragedy, our loss, our sadness, we feel set apart and isolated from our peers. Suddenly we begin to think that nobody knows how we feel. Some of it is the external pressure our society puts on us to be okay, and some of it is the internal pressure we put on ourselves to stay strong and to get over it. Many cultures around the world and throughout history curate an awareness of just how normal grief is, an awareness that both normalizes it so that the one experiencing it does not feel ostracized in their grief, and also normalizes it so that those who they are in community with do not feel awkward or uncomfortable when they're around the one grieving. There are so many kinds of grief rituals and traditions. Cultures that have specific days or, or seasons to venerate and commemorate those who they've lost allow a collective space to be held for grief to manifest and to be experienced with a seal of approval that says, it's okay to be sad. We all are. You're not alone. In Nepal, a son who loses his father has to shave all but a small patch of hair on the back of his head and wear white. They do that for an entire year. Grieving widows in some countries wear black for a year or so after the death of their husbands. Unless we think that it's all just secular culture, the Bible talks of wearing sackcloth and ashes during times of intense loss, and it has a whole category of worship language called lament that gives language for loss and suffering. It was written to guide God's people, which includes us, in how to process loss and recognize God's faithfulness is not just manifest when he acts to remove our difficulties and pain. He is equally faithful by being present with us and offering a comfort of presence in the midst of our times of tragedy and suffering. Our culture, however, has lost most of that language and distances itself from outward expressions of grief. A grieving person looks just like anyone else on the outside once the funeral is over, but they are feeling unlike everyone else in the inside. Even our church cultures, where we gravitate towards celebratory worship language of breakthrough, has lost the equally important worship language of lament. The net result is that in our spaces of worship, those of us who are experiencing the pain of loss cannot identify with the celebratory praise of worship, and that unintentionally we receive the message that our pain is not part of the collective experience, and therefore it does not belong here. This feeds the idea that no one understands me, no one knows how I feel, it turns our communities of worship and faith, the very people and places that are supposed to support us the most, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to us, into places of deepening isolation and loneliness. And so even without the support of cultural guides or of our faith communities, we need to learn to accept that this thing that isolates us, that sets us apart from all of our peers, is actually just something that makes us part of the world. Everyone goes through loss and experiences pain, not the same exact pain, but everyone's gone through something that adds to the collective experience of loss 
And we're not isolated in our pain, nor are we special or unique for having it. Nora says that grief is kind of one of those things like having a baby or falling in love, where you don't really get it until you do it. And once it's your love, your baby, your grief, once it's your front row at the funeral, you understand that what you are experiencing is not simply a moment in time, it's not a bone that's going to be reset, but that you have been touched by something chronic, something incurable. I spoke recently to the adult son of someone who had recently passed away unexpectedly from COVID-19. We talked about our expectations of grief and how it's not just something you pass through, it marks you forever. Since we're unable to prevent it or fix it, all we can do is remind one another that some things can't be fixed, and not all wounds are meant to heal. When it comes to grief and loss, we really need each other to remember, to help each other remember that grief is not a myopic thing. It's not just something you do and you get over with. It's a multitasking emotion that encompasses many aspects of life. And even while you are experiencing it, you can and will be happy again and sad, and you're going to be able to love again and experience joy again, sometimes in the same year, the same week, and even in the same minute. It gets confusing, and that confusing can also be isolating because we feel kind of crazy. And this is where we come to the idea of moving on. Just because someone's laughing, going back to work, or simply not crying at the moment doesn't mean they have moved on. It means they are moving forward. Moving on is very different from moving forward. Whether it's getting on with Christmas far from loved ones or dealing with the loss of a grandma or a father, we can carry the losses into our experiences and let them be part of the experience. That is moving forward. Or we can do what a lot of us do and pretend like we're fine and just move on. That's what our culture often pressures us to do with statements like, oh, you're being so strong, as if feeling sad was a sign of weakness or a lack of a commitment to calling. In reality, no one moves on from loss, even those of us who want to convince ourselves that we can. We can help others by not pulling back as soon as we think they might be doing okay, and we can help ourselves by advocating for ourselves and asking for more help than we probably are comfortable with doing. And since our culture doesn't really give us any obvious indicators that we are in the midst of loss, like giving us a black dress to wear or asking us to shave our heads for a year, once the funeral happens, that real tangible, obvious indicator of our loss, once it's behind us, the pressure is on to get pulled back into normalcy. But our lives after loss are anything but normal, and we do ourselves a disservice, and we do a disservice to others when we succumb to that pressure. What we find in our cultural context is that the sadness we perceive in those who are not able to get back to normal and be okay makes us say and do things to try to help, and most of those things actually make it worse. Some of the more explicit statements that we often hear or say are, it's all going to be okay, or you will move on. We say these things to try to ease our own discomfort at the discomfort of those who experience the loss for sure, but we are also trying to convince ourselves that it's true. I mean, it has to be true, because if it's not true that they will move on and things will be okay again, if that's not true, what does that mean for me when I face my own loss? But to the one hearing those kind of statements, it further solidifies that they are alone and their grief cannot be understood because when we hear it's going to be okay or you will move on, though they may, not, they may give a weak smile and say thank you, they know that they aren't okay and that they will not be okay. That This loss is impossible to move on from. Though it's just words, what they feel like is the expectation is that someday this won't matter to them anymore. He won't matter. She won't matter. 
Being far from home won't matter as soon as the holidays are over. It won't matter to you anymore, and you will be okay without them, or without whatever it is that you lost, as if it never happened. It likely is not what is meant when we say those things or when we hear them, but what it feels like to hear those words is that those things no longer should matter to us. It seems like this is a particularly Western or American kind of thing to push people to move on, to be okay, and to get over it. And the minute we see someone act somewhat normal again, we often assume it's all over for them and that they are okay. And we can breathe a sigh of relief because that awkward feeling of what do I do now or what do I say can be put to rest. Grief is chronic. It's multifaceted and it's not linear. I'd even say it's permanent. A young mother who had lost her mom and dad in a tragic accident once asked me, please tell me the pain will stop. My first instinct was to assure her that it would because I wanted her to feel better. But I caught myself and I said, it won't stop, but it will change. It won't always feel like this, but it will never fully go away. But isn't that really what you want anyway? She told me later how important that was for her because to lose the pain to her would be the same as losing the memory and the meaning of her parents. And that was something that would make a terrible loss even worse. We are a culture that really has an obsession with being in control. Loss undermines that illusion that we actually are in control in a unique way. And so we try to rationalize with ourselves that maybe in some way this loss was meant to be. It's terrifying to think that bad things could happen to any of us at any moment. In a recent workshop I facilitated on global worker resiliency, I emphasized our need to develop an awareness that the rain falls on the good and the evil alike. Things can happen, tragedy can strike anywhere and at any time to anyone. How we understand God is the overarching framework we employ to understand how the world works. For instance, if bad things aren't supposed to happen to good people, what does that say about me and about God? This is, of course, bad theology, but I think it would surprise us all to see how much this distorted prosperity theology affects our thinking and expectations about God. Our theology should enable us to focus on our limitations, not on our control, and on our Creator, not on the circumstances of creation. When you're on the outside of tragedy, it feels good to say, well, there had to be a reason for it. It's a protective measure when you're on the outside, like there are certain things that can happen to other people, and it happens for reasons. It could be just somehow faded in some way. We in the church take that same approach, only we often put God in it. God meant for it to happen. It was God's will, its providence, which is really a jacked up perspective of God when you stop and think about it. But when you are in tragedy, when you're experiencing loss and suffering and hear that there must be some reason for it, that really proves difficult. Most of the people I speak with cite this as one of the most painful things that others have told them. In her TED Talk, Nora references this with a story of a friend who lost her son to suicide. Another person in their faith community had a son who fell into a river, but was quickly scooped up and saved. Both events happened around the same time. Everyone rushed up to say to the one whose son was saved, Oh, well, God must have a plan for him, and that's why he was saved. But what does that kind of comment say to the mother who lost her son, or someone who lost their job, their home, or a loved one? Nor goes on to say, I can't believe in or love a God who says to one person, well, you get a Tesla, and to the other says, you get a tumor. I can't roll with a God who's that crappy of a planner. That just doesn't seem right to me. We do this all too often. To ourselves, to others, loss happens, we begin to try to find some kind of meaning for it, even to the point of blaming ourselves for not being faithful enough or obedient enough to God. How can loss be random? 
How can it not be the direct result of something I did or something I failed to do? When we ask it in that black and white of a way, we can begin to see just how pagan that thought process is and how much it reveals our obsession with control. There's a famous book by the rabbi Harold S. Kushner called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Because of his religious perspective, you would think that Kushner would be like, hey, it's part of God's plan. But his response is actually quite the opposite. He says, why do we insist on everything being reasonable? Why must everything happen for a specific reason? Why can't we just let the universe have a few rough edges? And this perspective is very consistent with the biblical theology of suffering. God is not out there planning the suffering of our world. In fact, he's groaning with us in it. Our suffering and loss is not part of some grand master plan. Our suffering is the consequence of mankind taking the reins of control into his own hands and not letting God be God. It's not God, the master puppeteer, pulling strings behind the curtain. Why doesn't he change it? Well, we might actually be surprised at how many times he actually does. But it is partly because he hasn't yet restored things to their proper order. And so we're left with one thing. We grieve. That's what grief is for. It becomes the place, the process, the intentionality we bring to bear on all the uncomfortable feelings that loss brings up, our sense of control, our pain at missing a loved one from from being far from home, our confusion, our disorientation, all the things that we otherwise would try to self-medicate through busyness, taking control, getting involved in drugs, sex, even excessive spirituality. Instead of avoidance, we are invited to grieve them. Grief allows us to focus on the loss instead of our lack of control or our fear of uncertainty, and it gives us space to have some emotions. We need to begin seeing grief not as an event that happens at the graveside, but more like a companion who now joins us in the journey of life, one who speaks up from time to time, one who we would do well to pay attention to when he does have something to say. Grief becomes like a tattoo. Once you get it, it's pretty much there for the duration. It hurts like crazy and eventually the pain goes away, but the mark remains. It blurs and fades over time, but it's always there, always a reminder of the moment when the needle first plunged into your skin and left its mark. That's grief. Always there's a monument to the memory of our loss, but the pain of it changes and dissipates as time passes. In her book, Emotional Agility, Susan David talks about the power of being present to our emotions in order to grieve well. She writes extensively on the danger of toxic positivity. Susan writes about the notion of not categorizing feelings as either good or bad. We love to label and organize because it brings more order and control into our moments of chaos. But doing that to our emotions, she says, makes some feelings less appealing and therefore less valuable than others. In Susan's story, she shares how her father died when he was 42 and she was 15. He had been very sick. She said goodbye to him one day and told, her, told him that she loved him and headed off to school, not knowing that while she was in math class, he had slipped away. For seven months, she went about her days with a smile on her face. Her grades didn't suffer. When asked how she was doing, she would shrug and say, okay. She says she was praised for being so strong. She was the master of being okay, refusing to accept the full weight of her grief. No one knew, and in a culture that values relentless positivity, no one wanted to know. For many, our idea of grief ends at the funeral. If it's not explained as a long-term chronic condition, sometimes we just don't know how to do it and don't know what's happening when we start crying unexpectedly. 
we think something's wrong with us when we're just having a very human reaction to a very human situation. Susan shares research as a psychologist that reveals how by not holding space for our more difficult emotions, our systems actually become poisoned. We were created to experience the full range of emotions for the appropriate context. Not confronting our difficult emotions can manifest in physical and mental ways like eating disorders, depression, anxiety, diabetes, heart attacks, and chronic pain. Of the 70,000 people she surveyed, she found that one-third of respondents either judged themselves for having so-called bad emotions, like sadness, anger, or grief, or actively tried to push aside those feelings in order to get on with life. We do this to ourselves, but also to people we love, like our children, or those that we disciple, or those that we lead. We inadvertently shame them for having emotions seen as negative and send the message that these emotions are not safe here. We praise them for being okay and negate the negative emotions by jumping to solutions, thereby failing to help people see that these emotions are inherently valuable. By labeling them, normal, natural emotions are now seen as good or bad, and being positive has become a new form of moral and spiritual correctness. People with cancer are told to stay positive. People suffering under injustice or oppression are told to stop being so angry. And on and on the list goes. Normal human responses to normal human situations like loss or grief receive the message that your feelings are shameful and they're not welcome here. Susan writes, We live in and exist in a tyranny of positivity that is cruel, unkind, and ineffective. And we do it to ourselves and we do it to others. Research on emotional suppression shows that when emotions are pushed aside or ignored, they actually get stronger. Internal pain always comes out. It's kind of like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. It eventually pops out with force and splashes everyone around with water. We pay the price of emotional suppression. Our families, our children, our colleagues, and our communities. Everybody pays the price. How often when our kids are feeling down, maybe because the lockdowns have been hard, maybe the isolation is getting to them, maybe they're missing cousins or aunts or uncles who are in another country, and we say, oh, come on. Think of all the positive things that have come out of this. Think of all the good that you've been able to do because of the lockdown, and at least you didn't get COVID, right? And think of all the time we've gotten to spend together. Some of those things may actually be true, but when we suppress those feelings, we we send a message that they're not welcome, and they obviously, as I've shared, can have a bad consequence. You know, we all feel bad when our kids feel bad, so... We try to push it away. We try to encourage them to push it away. We want to be able to fix things. We want to be able to fix their pain. We want to make things better for the ones we love, especially when there are wonderful, adorable children. Think about all the anger and rage coming out against the church at these times. Think about all the racial animosity being expressed. People have been shamed for their feelings of grief, sadness, and anger for far too long, and it's coming out, sometimes toxically, sometimes just necessarily. The ball is popping up to the surface and water is being splashed all over the place. Hurt people are hurting people and we haven't paid enough attention to the needs to create space for difficult and painful emotions to be expressed and processed. We have not curated safe spaces for those around us, especially those on the margins and who hold less power and ability to determine their own narratives. We haven't given them space to express their pain, their feelings of being misunderstood, their experience of isolation and neglect. We want them to be okay, to move on, to get over it, because when we can all get back to normal, then we're going to be okay too. We'll be in control of our lives again. But that's really not how grief works. 
So what is the solution for this compulsive resistance we have to grief? Susan shares in a podcast how, after her father's death, her eighth grade teacher handed her a notebook and said, write how you're feeling, tell the truth, write like nobody is reading it. That's the solution. It's the key. It's very similar to the counsel I give to people in the throes of grief. Externalize your emotions. Get them outside of yourself where you can see them and touch them. Write them out. And as Steve Finley often says when he's debriefing people, let your emotions disentangle from your thoughts. If you're an artist, paint them into existence. If you're a songwriter, sing them. Do what you have to do to own your own feelings. If you don't, they're going to own you. Like someone who works a muscle, you move from the emotional rigidity of denial to the flexibility of emotional agility when you learn to express your emotions. Susan writes, tough emotions are part of our contract with life. You don't get to have a meaningful career or raise a family or leave the world a better place without stress and discomfort. Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Emotional agility is more than having the words. It's also being able to sit with and experience all of our emotions. A friend of mine who had experienced a tremendous loss shared a picture he got when praying about how to move on. He felt the Lord showing him a room that he knew was his grief. He felt intense resistance at entering the room, but he did so at the Lord's invitation. Upon entering it, his eyes immediately went to the back of the room to see where the exit sign was so he could pass through it as quickly as possible. To his dismay, there was no exit sign. Instead, He saw prominently in the center of the room a single chair. He was being invited by God to sit in his place of grief, not to see it as something to pass through and to get out of as quickly as possible, but to create space for it and sit in it. And as he did, he realized that God was pulling up a chair of his own and sitting down with him, not to fix or remove the loss, but to accompany him in it. I'll wrap up with this final thought from Nora's TED Talk, where she said that we all have the sacred responsibility to fully live in the face of our losses, to wake up each day appreciative of what we have alongside of the longing for what we have lost, and acknowledge that it is hard. It's hard to wake up in the bed alongside the empty space where once slept the person you loved more than any other person in the world. It's hard to be in a place far from home without the tangible evidence of the holiday season, and more so without the comfort of loved ones. I think the Bible offers us the same conclusion. In our two forms of worship language, praise and lament, we see the dual processes of life and existence side by side. We see the celebration of all the wonderful acts of deliverance of God alongside of the appeal to the same God to be present in the seasons of suffering. And we discover that authentic living is found when we learn to hold the tension between the two. We fail ourselves and others when we over-identify with one or the other. Author Soon Chan Ra, in his book Prophetic Lament, calls that tension the fullness of the gospel displayed to the world. So if you're facing loss and don't know what to do, if this holiday season is a difficult time, reach out. It's probably that there are others feeling the same way but convinced that they have to put on a good show for you. Find space to sit with your pain and let God sit with you in it. Write it out. Tell the truth and write like no one is going to read it. I will close with a prayer from the Mennonite tradition written for those who are grieving. Our loving and eternal God, the one who knows our heart and from whom no secret is hidden. We come before you with all the sorrow and pain that is in our hearts today. We bring our grief, our sense of loss before you. We also come before you with a sense of hope and expectation. Amen. Thank you for listening to Resiliency. Special thanks to Antioch Music and their original song, Nothing Can Stop, for our intro and our outro music. 
Tune in again in two weeks for our next episode of Resiliency. Resiliency.